You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is... Distilling Theology. Welcome back, ladies and Gentiles. We are so happy to be here with you. Uh, My name is Justin, co-host of Distilling Theology, joined by none other than the baby-sprinkling, Presbyterian, long-haired, beautiful man that I have known for many years, my dear friend, Blake Courtright. How are you doing, brother? I don't know how to take all that manly compassion. This is a very (laughs) strange lead-in. But yeah, I'm good, man. Uh, We're bracing for a northeastern ice storm, and uh, my wife is not thrilled. I'm not particularly thrilled about it either. Snow is one thing, but uh, uh, the less snow there is, the more ice there probably will be. So so that's exciting. Mm -hmm. But uh, otherwise... You know, it's all good, man. It's all good. And uh, we're not alone this evening. We are joined once no, again by our friend Tony Arsenal of the Reformed <laughs> we're Brotherhood. Two, we're two or more gathered. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Well, anyways, we're joined by Tony Arsenal of the Reformed Brotherhood podcast. Um, and also, he's got other things going on. So, Tony, welcome back to DT and tell us what's uh, what's happening. What are you up to? Uh, right now I'm recording a podcast. I, you know, I feel like whoever that guy that walked around with Jonathan and David, whoever that guy was, that's what I feel like right now. <laughs> Just feeling the covenant love flowing between the two of you. It's, it's something to behold. That's yeah, amazing. I'm, uh, I'm recording with you guys, but, uh, more, more regularly I'm recording with my brother-in-law, Jesse over on the Reform Brotherhood. We're doing kind of a for the rest of our lives, theology series, just working through, uh, as we go, just started a new podcast. Uh, it's just about episode five on the uh, Westminster larger catechism called the reform standard, which is kind of a revival, uh, revival show. This is now its third iteration. I think, uh, that the reform <laughs> standard has launched and crashed and launched again. So, uh, hopefully we'll get some momentum on this, but you can check that out anywhere you get podcasts just called the reform standard. It's got a nice little picture of, uh, the right confessional building, which is the Westminster <laughs> Abbey building. Oh. So, uh, you're outnumbered tonight, Justin. So that's all right. It's you know, all good. It's about time. You know, it seems like Blake's been outnumbered quite a lot lately. So it is, it is. Well, I mean, I mean Baptists he, are I mean, outnumbered. He mar- in I mean, he the- married a Baptist. So. I was just, well, so did I. So I'll say you're outnumbered in the history of the church too. So this is just a solid representation. Here we go. Uh, Well, before Um, we get into too much savagery, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, We have a a Glenn Morangi again tonight. Um, We figured because uh, Tony also had to have it on hand uh, that we were going to to try this. It is the last of our little four pack that we had, uh, the Sauternay's cask finish. Um, there's another thing on here. I can't quite read the nectar door. So I don't know. It, it smells delicious. Uh, I don't know if you have any notes on the actual, um, this particular. Oh, I do. Over there, but <laughs> excellent. Fill us in Balake. Oh yes. So I had to dig around a little bit because on Glenn Morangi's website, they're kind of vague, which 
unfortunately happens Naturally. with a lot of scotch marketing. Um, however, upon a little bit of digging, uh, this scotch is aged for a grand total of 12 years, um, 10 of which it spends in ex-bourbon casks, but then it's finished for two years in those former wine casks. And that's a, a white dessert wine. So I'm anticipating a lot of sweet notes from that. Um, it also won a great. bunch of awards, including uh, silver at the 2020 World Spirit Competition in San Francisco, and it won gold at the 2020 International Spirits Challenge. Uh, nectar, or means golden nectar, as or is the Scottish Gaelic word for gold. And Glenmorangie was apparently one of the first distilleries to legitimize the practice of finishing its whiskeys and wine casks, which now is pretty, pretty widely distributed. It's even made its way into American whiskeys. Um, like the black and whiskey and other things where there's a finishing process. Uh, but before that, it wasn't super common. So good on Glenmorangie for making that happen. Um, and as an aside, the parent company that owns Glenmorangie also owns the vineyard uh, in France that makes these wine casks and that makes this wine. So that's just kind of a fun little thing. But uh, jumping into it, what do you guys get on the nose? Yeah, so right off the top, I'm getting a lot of like apricots, Fructose, kiwis, orchard fruits. My palate is not refined at all, but I this smells sweeter than most scotches I think that I've had. Mm. So I think that fits with that fruity kind of fruitiness, that wine sort of more winey smell. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind. Of, I mean, it is a, it is a, it's still got that sort of sherry feel, but uh, almost like a sugary icing. Even I was gonna say, there's like. Vanilla, honey, even a little bit of dark chocolate, and some baking spice. Okay, yeah, sure. That's really nice, actually. Like, I wasn't... So, because I had the Glenmorangie 10, that was my first intro to Glenmorangie as a spirit. I didn't really get that into it. Um, but this guy, this is really, really a nice smell. And honestly, when we tasted the 14 as well, that was something um, that I was quite pleasantly 14 surprised really by. 14 really good, yeah. This guy retails locally here for uh, $67.99. So about about Patrons mid-range see for... see the color here. Oh, yeah. About mid-range for like a, a 12-year-old fruity scotch from the Highlands. Um, and the first time... Now, I don't remember if it was this one or if it was... Um, there's another scotch from Glamourangi that looks very similar, but I had this with um, my wife and her aunt and uncle when we were um, hanging out with them after a wedding. So um, I believe I've had this one before, but I, I definitely had the 14 with them for the first time and it's real good. So yeah, man, I'm excited to, uh, to get into it. It's just it's very cute. elegant. Like it's, it's, it's not crazy complex necessarily, but it's just elegant in those aromas. I like it already. There is a, yeah, there's a little bit of oak and maltiness. So I'm excited to see how that plays out in the flavor. Yeah, man. All right. You can give us that cheers. Ooh, that's delightful. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's very um multidimensional for a sherry. Or a uh, you know wine, there, wine. There's definitely the yeah. There's definitely the oakiness. Yeah. In the spice. Even like a hint of green tea, maybe. Okay. Um, but then it, it's kind of covered with like the the like an apricot jam yeah. over the top. It's pretty good. 
I'm in. I can't tell you anything about the taste just because I'm a I'm a Gentile and a I don't know like an uncircumcised Philistine with this stuff. <laughs> but I do have a funny story about how I acquired this spirit. So my my wife um, was trying to go think outside of the box for my Christmas gift this year, which it, we call it on the Reform Brotherhood. We like to call it Midwinter No Season. And um, so she decided she was going to contact the local, uh, we have like state run liquor stores in New Hampshire, but uh, she contacted the local store and wanted to put together like a little package of, of samplers and stuff for me. But she knows even less about this stuff than I do. And so I get this text message at work. That's like, I need you to go to the liquor store and pick up a bag of stuff that I bought, but you can't look in it. And the reason is because she, uh, at the time, I think was like four months pregnant, was concerned about how heavy this might be Mm because she bought a fair amount of different things. And I get there and it's all in like one paper bag. And I was like, oh, sweetie. Yeah. Just because it's a lot of money doesn't mean it's a lot of liquor. (laughs) So, but this, this is very good. And I'm excited. I told her I was waiting to open up this sampler pack until a special occasion. And I couldn't, couldn't think of a more special occasion to drink scotch than, uh, Hanging out with you guys tonight. Aww. Well, cheers. Thanks, brother. Cheers, man. Thought I had to get on on some of that uh, covenant love from earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the man. more the merrier. Hey, Amen. It's it's a full of romantic love here. Um, so reading off the box, they say, a sumptuous nose of lemon tart, vanilla pods, orange zest, and coconut. Then comes silken taste of gingerbread, nutmeg, and meringue, and a sweet, mellow finish. So... I like that. I also saw somewhere in there a little bit of a zesty um, on their website. They mentioned zesty ginger and nutmeg on the very end of the finish, which I could see that now along with that honey sweetness. Um, Yeah, this is great. I've been similar to you. We've had these samplers for a little while now and we've just kind of been working our way through them as, as occasions arise. So I'm glad that I'm glad you picked up the same sampler. So we had an excuse to to open this up. This is delicious. Yeah, this is so good. Absolutely. I love it. Well, guys, before we before we jump into our topic tonight, um, as per usual, uh, if you have a Valley of Vision at home, um, if well, if you don't, please pick one up. Totally worth every penny. Um, but if you do have one, uh, go ahead and open with us uh, to page three fifty. Um, we're going to pray on scriptural convictions. I, I don't think we discussed who's praying tonight. Oh, but we did. Oh, we did. Perfect. Do it. I'm. I'm going to pray. I love it. All right. O God of love, I approach thee with encouragements derived from thy character, for I am not left to feel after thee in the darkness of my nature, nor to worship thee as the unknown God. I cannot find out thy perfections, but I know thou art good, ready to forgive, plentiness in mercy. Thou hast displayed thy wisdom, power, and goodness in all thy works, and hast revealed thy will in the scripture of truth. Thou hast caused it to be preserved, translated, published, multiplied, so that all men may possess it and find thee in it. Here I see thy greatness and thy grace, thy pity and thy rectitude, thy mercy and thy truth, thy being and men's hearts. Through it thou hast magnified thy name, and favored mankind with the gospel. Have mercy on me, for I am ungra- I have ungratefully received thy benefits. Little improved my privileges, made, little, made light of spiritual things, disregarded thy messages, 
contended with examples of the good, rebukes of conscience, admonitions of friends, leadings of providence. I deserve that thy kingdom be taken away from me. Lord, I confess my sin with feeling, lamentation, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, self-aberrance, self-condemnation, self-despair. Give me relief by Jesus, my hope. Faith is his name of Savior. Forgiveness by his blood, strength by his presence, holiness by his spirit, and let me love thee with all my heart. Amen. Amen. Always so good. Uh, Guys, so... Uh, tonight we wanted to come and talk, uh, kind of follow up with what we've been talking about. Uh, we opened up, at least for our patrons, uh, l- uh, last week um, on church polity. And so we thought it would be an important discussion to, def- to define what a church even is, right? What is a true church? What what, what are the marks of a true church? Um, and unfortunately, we live in a day and age when the church is kind of viewed as kind of like a smorgasbord, right? There's all kinds of churches, um, basically it's, it's run like a business in, in many cases in our country, um, where they have basically CEOs who are trying to get as many people through the doors as possible, uh, so they can make more money and grow and all these things. Um, which in some ways isn't terribly different from that of the, um, the time of the reformation, right? You had Orthodox, Lutheran, Anabaptist, reformed, uh, particular Baptist, you had all the, the Roman Catholic church, uh, all available to you as a individual at the time. Um, so tons of organizations were calling themselves church, right? So, um, and, th- and that's not even calling into consideration any of the cults that we have to deal with uh, who also say they're coming in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and so uh, fortunately there are marks that we can use to distinguish biblically what is a true church, um, the core doctrines that we can look to and the core things that we can point to to determine what a church actually is um, because God uh, preserves his remnant. So, yeah, that's what yeah, we're going to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, historically we'll talk about four things of what makes that, right? There's, it's one church, it's holy, it's Catholic or universal, it's apostolic. Um, I don't know, Tony was, Tony messaged us and said, hey, you guys want to talk about the marks of the church? I said, hey, are you free tomorrow night? Um, so, uh <laughs> Tony, why don't you give us a little blurb, just getting into that. What what are those marks of the church that you had in mind uh, that you yeah. were referencing in our message there? Yeah, so there, there's two kind of two ways to come at this, right? So there's the the f- kind of four attributes that uh, Blake just mentioned, right? That the church is one, it's holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. And when you talk about those attributes, you're kind of talking about the, the big C church uh almost conceptually, right? You're talking about what it is that the church is, not necessarily the invisible church. And I'm sure you guys will get into those categories as you talk about invisible versus visible. I don't think you guys have been there yet in your series, but that's the attributes that describe the, the corporate big C church, the universal church across all time spaces uh, since Christ came and and, until Christ returns. Real quick, just to interject just so people who are listening who maybe don't know, when we say Catholic Church, we simply mean Universal Church, not the Roman Church. So, right, that, yeah, that lowercase c Catholic, the the word yeah. that was co opted by the Papists and abused. Um, yes. <laughs> the idea of a, a regional Catholic Church is is idiocy, anyways. Um, <laughs> but 
all of that is good and well, and, and we, we need to talk about that. We need to understand those categories, but that doesn't help us all that much if we're trying to look at an individual local congregation right. and make a decision about whether this is actually a church or whether it's a, you know, the biblical term is a synagogue of Satan, right? Is this a, a false church that presents itself as a church, but actually isn't? Um, and then on some level, we need to assess the quality of a church, right? Because in most, even even now in kind of the secular age we live in, in most areas you live in, there's going to be multiple valid churches in any given city, um, even among, you know, a particular denominational position. You can go to just about sure. any moderately sized town or church in the in the country, in the United States at least, and find a couple Baptist churches and maybe a couple Presbyterian churches, and you're going to find a couple that don't have a denominational affiliation. So evangelical Baptist churches usually. Um, <laughs> so we need to be able to not only assess, are these individual congregations actually churches? Are they part of the one holy Catholic apostolic church? Are they a valid kind of local expression of that? And then out of these churches I have, which one is probably the kind of the best in terms of quality, in terms of faithfulness and the, the mm. other marks of the church that the reformation kind of um, distilled out, no pun intended, but sort of distilled out of, of actually it was 15 marks of the Roman Catholic church. So the Roman Catholic church in the reformation had 15 different categories that they assessed um, whether a given local congregation was actually part of the apostolic church. So the reformation after coming out of that, it started out as two and then the reformed kind of added a third mark that the Lutherans didn't necessarily recognize. And they wanted to say that a, a true, valid, biblical, local church um, was properly preaching the word, right? Was properly administering the sacraments or ordinances. Uh, both of those are great words. No shame in using either of them. Um, and also was properly administering proper church discipline. And what you'll see, and, and as we talk about this, I'm sure it'll come up, but when you look at the way that the Reformed Confessions have structured this, this mm -hmm. is a super common, almost universal and Reformed uh, doctrine. It's in the Belgic Confession as well, I think. Right. Belgic Confection, Confection? Belgic okay. Confession. The Westminster, the Westminster uh, Confession has it. Strangely enough, the London Baptist Confession eliminated it, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Um, just one more... <laughs> One more uh, reason why you should adopt the Westminster. Uh, and then I, I, one thing I've been doing, um, if you go to like the social media for the Reform Brotherhood website, every day I look at different uh, confessions and I post little blurbs from them. And the Scottish Confession of Faith actually has, I think, the clearest and strongest statement of this, um, which is, is interesting because that was one of the more early kind of earlier mm. Reform confessions was the Scots Confession. But they really kind of land in on this for some specific reasons that the other confessions, especially the later confessions, don't touch on as much. So those three marks, the proper preaching of the word, particularly the gospel, right? The law gospel distinction and properly presenting the gospel is really what the Reformation Church has had in mind with this. Mm -hmm. um, the administration of the sacraments and the proper discipline, especially in, as it involves the Lord's Supper. Those are the three things that the Reformation you know, divines that we all look to as as rock stars of the historic Christian faith. Those are the things they looked at when they wanted to determine: does, is this local expression of the universal church? Is right. it actually an expression of the universal church? And then, how faithful of an expression is it? Right. Yeah, I mean, we see this right in in Matthew. Um, 
28, he talks about going therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm always with you to the end of the age. I mean, that is essentially as clear as you can get as far as some sort of establishment of what Marx sets apart the church. Uh, Danny Hyde actually uh, says, apart from the gospel preached, there is no church. So I, I, I would say we should start by looking at um, at that, right? The 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 pure preaching of the gospel, because that that's probably the most fundamental of the three marks, um, right. as far as what distinguishes a biblical church from from a non biblical church. Um, right? How how do they call on on whom uh, <laughs> if they've not believed and so on? So um, so yeah, let's start there. Um, Paul addresses the importance of the preaching of doctrine right in Romans extensively, but in Romans ten. Uh, he says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they uh, to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, fundamentally, salvation comes from hearing the word preached. So, of course, the backbone of a biblical church must be the unadulterated preaching of the whole counsel of God. Um, And people, I think, often stop at uh, evangelism, right? And there's churches that are modeled specifically after just doing that over and over again every week, um, leaving, of course, the church very atrophied. Um, So what what does that look like, right? What is... What does the whole preaching, the pure preaching of the gospel uh, look like? I mean, I can speak from my own, like, my own little experience that you both have been a piece of, of my journey out of Unitarianism mm-hmm. and into Orthodox, the, the sweet waters of Orthodoxy, right? I went to a spot where, you know, there, there's a line in, um, I think it's a Timothy Brindle song about uh, uh, David and Goliath, head crusher, right? And he says, well, if, if, you know, you can crush your, your giants, but if you're not seeing that this is about Jesus and Satan in the metaphysical sense, uh, and, and instead you're, you're superimposing yourself in this story as David, like that could be a mend in a synagogue. And I, and I felt that somewhat deeply because I was in a situation where they're denying the deity of Christ, but they're preaching, they're reading through the Bible and they're preaching through the text and they're talking about God and they're talking about morality and they're talking about the Ten Commandments, but they're missing Christ. And they're missing the inseparable operations of God from Genesis to Revelation, right? To, to go back to Dr. Vidu and that interview that we did and the one that Tony had with him, which was a great companion back-to-back uh, piece there. In other words, it, people should listen to both of our podcasts. They should. Well, yeah, but I, and I, I actually, I had actually listened to Reform Brotherhood to your interview, Tony, so that specifically so that I wouldn't repeat the same question so people could get... Uh, that more technical detail with you guys and then kind of more colloquial conversation on our end. Um, but, but yeah, I, I missed all of that. And so, yeah, I, the Bible was opened every week and the, the verses were being read, but we were missing the, the whole point of what we were reading. Right. It's like, Jesus says, right. don't you understand? Like, how don't you know what, what, <laughs> what you're seeing here? Right. And so just because the Bible's open, all, all that to say, just because the Bible's open in a space on a, on a Sunday morning does not mean that the word is being preached. I we think see it's that a, in the progressive church, right? Oh, yeah. Heavily. Um, 
solar fields. Yeah, and, and theologically, you know, theologically speaking, the, the reason that this mark is so fundamental and the reason it's the first mark of the church is there's the, the primary difference or one of the primary differences between, you know, kind of Romanist papal theology and uh, of the church specifically and reformational and particularly reformed theology is that in the Roman Catholic model, the church is the ongoing in, incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so there's an intrinsic authority that rests in the church that doesn't require any validation from anything else, right? So the, the church is the authority, and they determine what Scripture is. So the, the church in the Roman system determines the Scripture. But in the Reformational system, and again, I think it finds its kind of its zenith in the Reformed model over and against the Lutheran model, the Word of God is what creates the church, and so just if you go, if you um, turn to Ephesians chapter four, um, I, I have a motto. I, I like to read a lot of scripture at one time because it's, it protects me from taking something out of context. So I'm going to read a lot of chapter four here. This is the so way. I'm going to start in, I, I'm going to read the whole thing. So starting in verse one. I love it. I therefore, this is obviously Paul. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you who were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In ascending, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descends is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I'm getting to the point, I promise. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here, here's where it comes into play. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. So Paul, Paul's conception here is that the Son of God came, he took death captive, and he defeated it, and he ascended back to heaven. And, and as he did that, he sent gifts to the church, and those gifts were the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, it, depending on where the listener is coming from in their history, some of those things have been abused in their history as far as what those offices are. But every single one of those are word-preaching offices, right? The prophets were word-preaching prophets. The apostles were word-preaching apostles. The evangelists preached the, the gospel. They were the gospel preachers. And then the shepherds and teachers are those who now, in the ordinary ministries of the church, preach the word to the congregation. And the function of these people is to equip the saints to, for the work of ministry and then for the building up of the body of Christ— so this preaching function that is present in these five or four offices, depending, depending on how you split it up, this word preaching function is what has construed and constructed the church. Mm. It's what builds up the body of Christ. 
So fundamentally, when we come to the church as an as an organism, whether it's the church corporately or the church locally, when we come to the church, it's been created by the word of God preached. You don't have mm-hmm. preaching, you don't have a church because there's no building up of the body there. So this may feel, I think sometimes we talk about these marks of the church and because people in our circles are so quick to point to the confessions and we get all jazzed up. Oh, look, it's in the Scots confession. The the Belgic confession's got it too. We get so excited about that. And I think rightfully so, like there's a lot yeah. of wisdom in those, but this is fundamentally a theology that comes from the scripture itself. The mm-hmm. scripture makes the claim that the scriptures have created the church, not the other way around. So that the reformers coming out of the Roman church, looking at these 15 points of, of analysis that they needed to establish they went, wait a second, we got to start all over. And we're going to start over where we started over with salvation, where we started over with justification, where we started over with how we worship the Lord, where we start over now with how we construct and how we conceptualize the church. Mm-hmm. It's a gathered group of people gathered around the preaching of the word and being united in one spirit by that preaching of the word. Mm-hmm. So you really can't under you really can't overemphasize how important this idea is in the the mind of the reformers and in the mind of Paul for establishing what is the church and what isn't the church, right? right. A congregation that uh, gets together and does all the exact same things that a church does on Sunday morning, but delivers a sermon out of like the most recent Marvel comic movie. That's mm-hmm. not a church, right? It's like a focus group or an interest right. group. It's <laughs> this, yeah, I guess you could call it like the church of, I don't know, like the church of Steve Rogers or something crazy like that, <laughs> but, but it's not right. It's not, the Christian church, because the Christian church is created by the preaching of the word and the reception I, I, of the word. Yeah, I think I think it's excellently defined when they say it needs to be the pure preaching of the word, because a lot of mm-hmm. people will preach from the word, but they're not preaching the word, right? Are they preaching that sinners are justified by the free grace of God alone, right? Which is received through faith alone, according to scripture alone, right? Through Christ alone. So are, are these the things that are being preached? Um it's like the yeah. uh, the hymn, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Are are we? Uh, is our word and is our preaching built fundamentally on the backbone of that? That uh, right, the solas ultimately, right? The the reformers understood that um, to be purely preached meant that it was to be rightly handled, which we see in Second Timothy, right? Um, we the understanding the distinction between law and gospel, but that both are to be preached the law and all of its terror, <laughs> right? And the gospel and all of its grace. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there are right ways and wrong ways to handle the word. Um, and for the word to be purely preached, there's there's conditions which need to be met um, in order for that to happen, right? If they preach any other gospel, Paul says, right, whether it is explicitly, uh, you know, faith plus works or some other, anything other than the gospel which they've been taught, um, it's another gospel, and therefore they're not preaching the word and therefore you're not in a church. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as we're um, tackling into this topic, like the last two weeks, three weeks, my, my pastor has been preaching through first, first Peter. And we came to chapter two, the last two weeks. And originally he was going to try and do verses one through nine as one sermon. And he ended up breaking it into three. So we're, we're part way through. (laughs) We're not even all the way there yet. It's like what we Um, do with podcast episodes. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we do, man. But he um he read from it, and I just want to read this section real quick because it's immediately applicable to what we're talking about here. This is uh Second Peter verses one through six, or one through five rather. 
So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. There's that same kind of verbiage that Paul's using, right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And our pastor talked about, as it goes in there, right, Christ, the cornerstone. The cornerstone doesn't just uh, indicate the corner of the, of the building, but it, like, it determines the level of the foundation. It determines the angles at which everything goes out. So like Christ, the cornerstone. But then elsewhere in the New Testament, right, we have the church is being built upon the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, as Tony's talking about, these preaching ministries. And so we are built up as the church the body of Christ, these living stones built in, and the foundation is laid, Christ the cornerstone, setting the measure, setting the direction, setting everything, but the prophets and the apostles are laying that foundation in their testimony, in the word. And so, yeah, if, if we're not anchored to that foundation of that word that's built on the cornerstone and on the testimony of these prophets and apostles, then we're just a rock off sitting on other rocks in, in a random formation. We're not built into the building of the church, the spiritual living building of the church. Um, but as you were reading that, Tony, in Ephesians, I, that passage in Peter's stood out to me. Like we are, as individuals, we're built in, but what are we built upon? It's this foundation. And it's not the apostles and the prophets as individuals, but as their testimony, as the message of salvation that they proclaimed. And without that, there's no building because there's no foundation that's attached to the cornerstone, which is Christ. Yeah. And I think you can see, like, I hope, I hope people see how these, this, how we assess the local church and, and it's more or less purity and its status is whether it's part of the church or not. It's directly tied now to these four attributes, right? Is it apostolic? Is it built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? So it's not as though, you know, these attributes, these sort of conceptual attributes and these sort of local application, it's not as though these things are mutually exclusive or even that they're speaking about radically different categories, right? So when we talk about the pure preaching of the word, we're, we're saying, all right, is it, is it Catholic? Is it universal? Is this the universal testimony of the church throughout history, right? Historical theology. Is this, what, is this the faith once handed down to the saints not just in the scripture, but also throughout the ages of the church, right? There's lots of things going on in modern reformed-ish theology that questions this Catholic principle, questions this universal principle. They're rejecting things that ought not be rejected, mm -hmm. right? But then also, is it apostolic? Is this the word preached? Does it line up with the apostolic and prophetic testimonies of the Old and New Testaments? And I think that's I think that's a really good insightful thing to point at is that the church is built not just this sounds almost blasphemous when I say it but just bear with me not just on the foundation of Jesus Christ it is the foundation of Jesus Christ the cornerstone but also on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets mm -hmm. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone of the apostles and the prophets so Christ in one sense stands alone in a totally separate category but in another sense, in his uh, incarnate ministry, he stands as the the chief apostle and the chief prophet of both the Old and Old and the New Testaments, 
right? Yep. So we have to we have to understand that relationship and how it connects that that sort of big picture capital C church concept with lower C church because that that flows from one to another in a way that I think is organic and it's it's intuitive, but it takes a tiny amount of thought to get there. I think. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, he's called the chief cornerstone, right? It's not as though there's not other stones in a foundation, right. but he is the chief cornerstone. Well, and then also Hebrews 1, right? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? He spoke by these inspired men. The Holy Spirit stirred these men to speak the word of God to the people. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then we get into the, Christ, the high Christology of Hebrews, right? But yeah. There, it's right there, right? To Tony's point, Jesus as the, the, the. Um, I'm mixing up my terminology. Sorry, uh, the perfect fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. He is fulfilling those ministries fully, and in the incarnation, we're getting that. And yeah, it's without that teaching. That's why I, I'm so baffled by people who want to say they're Christians, but then say, well, I'm a, I'm a Paul guy or I'm a James guy. And it, like, they like try to pit the apostles against each other or worse. They try to pit the apostles against Christ himself and say, I'm a red letter Christian. Like, and, and I know it's a yes. bit of a caricature, yeah. but I meet people like this who yeah. unironically think, well, Paul's just too heady and technical or James is too brash or or, you know, Jesus' words are really all I need, the red letters, and, and they disregard the whole testimony of Scripture. Well, my favorite, my favorite part of that is that the people who want to say, oh, I just, I'm just a Jesus guy, they point <laughs> to the passage in, in Corinthians where Paul is doing that, and they fail to recognize <laughs> Paul, Paul, the people in, in Corinth who are saying, well, I follow Christ. Paul doesn't have, like, kind words for them. He doesn't go right on. <laughs> he concludes them in the schismatics just like everybody else. But they have yeah. to even point to Paul. And that just shows you, like, the, the organic cohesion of Scripture, right? Yeah. You, can't, you can't even make your argument for why it's okay to say, I'm a Jesus guy as opposed to a Paul guy or a James guy without yeah. appealing to Paul. Well, those are the um, same or, people that say yeah. no creed but Christ, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah. So speaking of Christ being the chief cornerstone, that chief cornerstone instituted the second mark of a true church <laughs> amazing uh, amazing transition there uh, uh, and, th and that is of course the two not 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 more than two by the way the two sacraments um, that is uh, that which we can see in Matthew 26 Matthew 28 baptism and the Lord's Supper right um, those are the the two uh, sacraments that the church uh, has been given and so uh, if we are indeed a church, uh, these should be uh, evident. So let's dive into that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I want to read from the Scots Confession. I, you know, I think everybody go out and just read the Scots Confession. Um, it's it's so it's just so good. Like it's so good. And I know, like, okay, the Westminster's great. I love the Westminster Confession. Um, and yes, it has a lot of antecedents in the Scots Confession, but the Scottish Confession approaches some of this stuff in such a different turn of phrase and a different way of thinking at it. Yeah. Um, it says here, um, the notes therefore of the true Kirk of God, we believe confess and avow to be first, the true preaching of the word of God into which God revealed himself to us as the writings and the prophets and the apostles do declare. Right. So there's that first mark. Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus, which must be a next unto the word of promise of God to seal and confirm the same in our hearts. 
So that that you can see the the logical progression that the Scottish confession and the other confessions do it too, right? The Belgic confession follows the same line of thinking. The Westminster follows the same line of thinking. Again, not the London Baptist confession. I don't know what's going on with your people. It was self-evident, that's all. (laughs) Self-evident, maybe. Um, But it follows this really logical line of of logic, logical line of logic. It follows this line of thinking, right? That the, the sacraments are this visible word. So that in the, the other, other confessional traditions, whether it's the, the Roman Catholic confessional tradition or the Lutheran confessional tradition or the Methodists, right? Other traditions that, that don't hold this same kind of sacramentalism, um, sacramental sign and seal kind of theology that reform or particular Baptist, Reformed Baptists and uh, Westminster and Three Forms of Unity guys do. This doesn't really flow logically, right? Yeah. Because the, the sacraments do their own thing uh, apart from the reception of the word. Now, the Lutherans would say that the word has to be preached, but it doesn't have to be received for the sacraments to do what they do, right? A, a reprobate or someone who doesn't understand the sermon receiving the sacraments uh, is still receiving everything that the sacrament represents and everything the sacrament conveys. But in the Reformed tradition, that wouldn't be the case, right? So they've tied they've tied the word to the sacraments in a way where bread and wine is just bread and wine unless you attach the promises of God to it. And then it becomes this vehicle to communicate the, the promises of God in a really robust, um, almost sensual in terms of like sensory way that approaches us. But apart from that, it's just it's just regular bread and wine. It's just water. It's 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 not anything special. So the proper administration of the sacraments being a mark of the church is fundamentally tied to that first mark of the church. It's one, it's almost one in the same. You could almost consider them to be. Uh, one mark of the church, right? The proper administration of the sacraments is the proper preaching of the gospel and the proper preaching of the gospel is the proper administration of the sacraments. So it's this really closely tied together thing. Um, And just to sort of like kickstart our conversation, the next thing, that's why the discipline of the church is so tied into this as well. So I think sometimes we, we think of these three marks as like these three distinct marks and they don't really unless we really put it together, they don't make a lot of sense of why that's the, why these three marks and not other mm. marks. Yeah. Well, it's because these all center around defining who the church is by the preaching of the word, right? The power to loose and to bind the power of the keys in the reformed uh, and reformational mind is not some authoritative uh, ability that the church has to remit sin and to, to release people from purgatory what it is is the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the assurance, the, you know, the the assurance of pardon that comes in the gospel, or withholding that preaching, or mm-hmm. withholding the sacraments. So you can't really talk about one of these marks without also talking about the other marks. So I, I know I short circuited yeah. our nice little structure that we had, but no, it is what it is. Well, you're absolutely right, and I, and I think this ties into the unity of the church insofar as right. one of the ways that I'm unified with Blake, for example, and you despite our differences in covenantal theology as far as to whom the Lord's, uh, or to to whom baptism, for example, would be administered, we both agree, right, that it's to be done with water, whether it's sprinkling and pouring and immersion, and it's got to be done in the right context. So uh, Blake and I touched on this earlier on uh, in the episodes we talked about, uh, covenant theology and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, One of the reasons I, I would be more comfortable taking the Lord's Supper in a Presbyterian church than I would in a in a 
and a Methodist church because I know that the understanding of what is actually taking place is happening. Um, we are so much more tightly knit uh, in, in the difference is, is a lot smaller between the two of us. Uh, so in, in many ways, it's a, it's a unifying piece there, even amongst those who might have some disagreements. Yeah. Well, and also to Tony's point about this implicit unity, I think that that's a really helpful distinction because like we, we're all nerds. We all love systematic theology. We all love being able to disseminate between like ecclesiology and, and, uh, Christology and theology proper and soteriology and eschatology. And we like to, to delineate these things and, and rightly we should, but at the same time, Tony, I think you, you brought up a really important, indeed imperative point here that, that there's an organic unity within those things, right? Like you, you can't really separate your soteriology from your eschatology or your ecclesiology. And I think a lot of us that go on this journey from evangelicalism, or in my case, from, uh, cult heresy world into like reformed theology, you discover that it's all interconnected. And if you're really consistently paying attention and digging into it, I don't think you can stay just a five pointer for long without it starting to bleed into your other theological views. I mean, that was my experience, right? I, I came into the five points of Calvinism and slowly but surely uh, for lack of better imagery that infected and changed everything else that I viewed because I realized so taking John MacArthur so long. <laughs> but at the same time right it, yeah. <laughs> hold on i got you blake was busy so i did it i'm having way too much fun with the roadcaster but um <laughs> but yeah it, it, it's all interconnected and also that comment about the sacraments as a visible word i think is so profound and mm-hmm. one of the best things I've experienced aside from that weekly preaching and the assurance of pardon is when we take the supper or when I was baptized in the Presbyterian church, this it's a visible experience of that word preached. It is that word in a way that we can tangibly see and experience, but it's not just bread and wine in the abstract, nor is it some superstitious nonsense about it physically becoming blood and, and, and bread, sorry, Luther, um, or, or blood and, and, and body. Like it, it's, it's richer than that to me, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, it goes to say, um, my brain just left me. I'll get back on track here. It goes to say like these marks are more or less present in every church. But they're not, they're not all perfectly present in every perfect church. And I say this with all serious, like this would be a really good spot for me to just like dunk on the Baptist and I'm not going to do it. But when I, when I look at a Baptist church, right. And I say this as a member of a Baptist church. So I'm not, this is not me hating on Baptists in all honesty. A Presbyterian looking at a Baptist church is going to say the sacrament of baptism is administered, but not rightly. Right. And a, Presby- a Baptist looking at a Presbyterian church who observes infant baptisms and say, well, the sacrament is administered, but not rightly or, mm-hmm. or not, not as rightly as possible. And yeah. so we have to recognize and have some grace for our brothers and sisters that 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 more or less pureness of the church is a real function of the reality of the church. Right, It's a real function. And I think it's important because when, when you talk about these marks of the church, 
Um, I, you know, I love Scott Clark uh, over on the Heidelcast. He's he's a fabulous resource, but he he's gotten himself in hot water because he'll point out this logical implication of these three marks that that means like Baptist churches aren't actually churches. I don't think he has ever gone so far as to say that explicitly, mm-hmm. but he has out, very much so implied that that's the case. And I actually think that's too far because when we talk about the the sacraments administered, right? When you go to like a um even a Roman Catholic church and there's disagreements, right? Whether Roman Catholic congregations are actually visible churches or not. I think they are. John Calvin would have agreed with me. There are others in the Reformed tradition uh, and and other you know Reformational traditions who would disagree with me, and I have no qualms with that. It's totally fine. But when you observe these other congregations, <clears throat> that you know maybe they don't have great preaching, right? I I've told this story on my own show. I went home. I'm from Minnesota originally. I went home to my uh, what was my home church before I moved out east, and I went to a sermon. Uh, I went to visit my old church. And they were, uh, it was like 35 minutes into a 40 minute sermon before the verse, the first reference to scripture was made. And at that point it was mm-hmm. out of context. It wasn't even a valid reference to scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I went there and I went, Oh, that's not so good. And I, I wrote out my, my pastor who I usually would talk to wasn't there. So I wrote out a comment card giving some feedback, but that that's not a justification for me then to say, this isn't a valid church. There are other yeah. times that they preach sermons that are more biblically based. Um, every church has a skill set, right, and a proficiency. Some churches are really, really good at at administering and preaching the word. Some churches are really good at at properly administering the sacraments. Some churches are really good at proper church discipline. Um, some are really bad at all three, but that they're not absent from all three. So I know, yeah. I know, like. I'm kind of short circuiting the pathway of the conversation, but I wanted to make sure that got out there because I, I think that's, I think that's good and helpful because I think there are many people uh, maybe who are even listening who are part of, for example, maybe a Methodist church where those things are present, even though we may disagree with the fullness of which is taking place of what is taking place. Um, you know, I, I think of other, cause certainly uh, I think of Christians like Tozer, right? Uh, the, the the Calvinist favorite Arminian, right? He's 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 a, he's a brilliant writer. I love his work, um, and obviously we disagree on some things. But um, but the point is that that doesn't mean that the church is no longer null. It, and there are those who who would say no, Arminian churches are heresy, or they're right. you know the, it, just like you were saying with with these other um, with these other streams. Those people uh, are, are lots people of fun at parties. Take it too far. <laughs> yeah, those, are the, those are the fun people at parties. They, those are the people in that cor- in the corner of that meme, right? They don't even know that I have, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how um, I feel about that. So, yeah, I, I think that's important because especially uh, we get a lot of people, I think, who, who hear uh, folks like us, uh, reformers, um, who who talk so much about the importance of these theological things that they think we're doing so to the ex- exclusion of them as as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we don't want them to feel as though um, that's not the case because these are important. Uh, I, I'd say very important issues, uh, but I, I don't think most of these, assuming your church is at least partaking in these things, um, and, and assuming that you uh, believe the the fundamentals of biblical Christianity, um, they're not salvific things. Yeah. Well, and also as we, um, 
get towards the end of our time here. I don't want us to run out of too much time. So we will dive into the sacraments a little bit more. We already talked a little bit about baptism and the supper, and we're going to come back to those. Don't worry, guys. Um, but now we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, uh, discipline, specifically church yeah. discipline, and why yeah. that's a mark of a church. Um, although I will say, having, you know, Tony and I are in a group chat with a couple other guys from the pub, and there were some articles going around about some really uh, unfortunate and sinful things that have happened with at the hands of elders or pastors. And so like those are extreme examples where discipline is needed, but obviously we're, we're part of the the purpose of it is to hopefully keep us from getting to those extreme situations where people are really being severely sinned against and harmed. Um, so Tony, can you give us a little, uh, in the time we have left here, give us a little intro into church discipline and why we should really want to sit under a church that practices, practices good discipline. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this, for me, this was the epiphany, right? Was I used to think of church discipline as just the process outlined in Matthew 18, right? Just, just the way we confront sin. Um, you know, I kind of, I'm certainly, I don't think I would qualify as internet famous by any stretch of the imagination, but if I have any claim to being internet famous, it's actually because I wrote an article about Tulian Tavidian when his, his news of his affair first broke and he got picked up by like some national news outlets and my, my blog took off and then I like promptly stopped writing articles, um, shows how much I care about my consistency on my blog. But I used to think that church discipline was all about just like that process. And it was actually looking at these confessional statements and trying to understand how these three marks worked as a kind of cohesive system that sort of made me step back from that a little bit. And the reality is that, the preaching of the word on Sunday morning, that's church discipline, right? When the pastor says to the congregation, this sacrament is for believers only. And Paul commands us to examine ourselves. And if you are not able to take this, this bread and drink this wine in a worthy fashion, then you should abstain. That's church discipline, right? So it's not, it's not as though what this is saying is, all right, well, if they preach the gospel and they, uh, they have the Lord's supper, uh, at least once a month, but not more than once a month. Uh, and also if they do the Matthew 18 process and that's in their church, concept, that that's not what this is saying, What this saying, but what we're getting here from the reform tradition. Um, and I, as I've said, like, I just think from the biblical arguments, what we're getting is this comprehensive picture of a church that defines its own boundaries, right? It it's, it's constructed and it's, it's constrained by the word of God. Uh, mm-hmm. The regular principle worship ties into this, right? It's worship is structured and shaped and formed by the principles that God has commanded and, and not farther than that. Um, the sacraments are administered and, and as best as we can, uh, whether we're Presbyterians or, or Baptists, we apply the, uh, the baptism sacrament only to those who are proper recipients, right? Uh, and we allow only those who are proper recipients to take the Lord's Supper and then when we do identify, this is where kind of what we classically think of as church discipline. When we do identify those in our midst and we become aware through their own sin, usually that they actually are not Christians. They actually are not among us. They're present with us, but they are not of us. Then we do the proper thing to say, this is the boundary of the church. The boundary of the church includes those who are saved for Presbyterians. We would say those who are saved and their children and it doesn't involve those who are 
rebellious against the Lord, who openly acknowledge themselves to be sinners, who openly refuse repentance and refuse mm-hmm. correction, those people are outside of the church. And so the the reason that these are marks of the church is because each one of them in their own way has to do with defining and identifying and marking out the boundaries of the church. It's not so much about like a checkbox on a list. It's about the function and action of the church in self-defining herself through the preaching of the word, through the administration of the sacraments, through the binding and loosing power of the keys that the officers of the church, the elders of the church hold in identifying who is and remitting sin by identifying who is already Christ's and acknowledging that and issuing the assurance of pardon to them, and then withholding that assurance of pardon to those who are not pardoned, that's really where church discipline comes in. And I mean, practically speaking, church discipline is just a good thing, even if you're just restricting it to that Matthew 18 part. (laughs) Right. Being able to hold people accountable to what is commanded of us in the scripture, that's just a good and healthy thing. This yeah. sort of like willy-nilly everything goes thing that happens in a lot of churches, that's really a problem. Well, what does Proverbs 12.1 say, right? Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is a fool, right? Um, and I love that you touched on both the positive and the negative of, because there is a positive and a negative access of, uh, uh, aspect of church discipline, right? Um, encouraging and building up the members, uh, strengthening through God's appointed means and his messengers, right? Um, exhorting us to uh, obey our leaders and to submit to them. If we're not, how are we submitting to them if there's no consequences for doing something wrong, right? <laughs> You're, right. There's no submission if there's no authority, right? The, the church right. has been given certain authorities, um, right? And it promotes our holiness. It protects us from infection and heresy and restores the rebellious and, and, and makes clear the seriousness of, of resisting God's word and his, in, in, in his, um, his law, uh, without discipline. I mean, like you said, it, it kind of solidifies the other marks of the church. Well, Tony, you right. and Jesse had a conversation about this a couple of months ago where you, you referenced Paul's exhortations in Corinthians, I believe. And you were demonstrating how in the old Testament law, if somebody was caught in these sins, they were stoned. And Paul says, you know, basically remove them out of the church and, and submit them to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the work of the devil to, to their soul until they repent basically. And, and to Justin, our, your episode with Eric back on episode 35 over almost two years ago now, rejecting theonomy, praise the Lord, um, that it's not so much, oh, we're, we're just God directly unilaterally applying the Mosaic code, civil code, but, but that there's this transformation that within the church, there is this power to remove people from the community and say, you are not living as Christ's and you need to repent. And if you don't repent, you are outside and you are not permitted to participate in these sacraments because you mm-hmm. have, by your own actions, by your own refusal to repent of your sin— and continuing to live in that, you are proving yourself to be outside of Christ. And it's, it's a weighty thing. And Justin, you were there uh, at my baptism when I joined my Presbyterian church and took those vows. And part of that is to submit not only to the teaching, but to the discipline of the church. And I, I spoke those words joyfully because I know yeah. that if the elders of my church and my pastor are seeing sinful patterns in my life. I want those people, those other members of the body of Christ to spurn me on to repentance through this process to, uh, to, for my own soul, for my own, the, the being of my own soul to say, Hey, you know, you need to repent. You need to stop what you're doing. 
and to be called to account because I don't live um, in an island. And uh, I see Tony editing our notes there for, for that piece. But uh, Justin, what are your <laughs> final thoughts there? It sounds like you're, you're getting to the end there, chomping at the bit. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, boy. Look at that. Look at those notes. Mm. <laughs> um, no, I, I agree. I, for me, I, I, sitting back and watching, I mean, you and I, Blake, we've known each other for a, a decade plus. Which is um, so weird. <laughs> I know. It's super weird. And uh, I, I remember conversation we had uh, at my old house right down the street, um, sitting on the couch when you were talking to me about the Trinity and some other things. And I remember sitting there thinking like, okay, Lord, how, how are you going to, how, how are you going to bring Blake about to the truth of your word? Right. Mm -hmm. Because, um, because I knew, I knew that you were really genuinely wrestling with these theological concepts. And when you started going to your new church, um, watching how a church that properly takes into consideration these different marks, uh, watching them come over you and, and shepherd you, the, the transformation became very rapid all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, and it was a beautiful thing to behold. Um, and uh, seeing you get baptized was a wonderful thing. Um, I mean, like like your wife and I said, you know, we wish there was a little more water, but other than that, uh, it was a beautiful thing, and, and I was super happy to be there. Uh, and I'm glad uh, that you have that home now, that home away from home, um, where you can go and be and be properly fed. Uh, in the same way that I feel incredibly blessed to have uh, grown up in a church that, uh, for all of its flaws, um, has continued to seek after uh, the nature and the character of who God is, rightfully so, um, and to see the, the changes happening in my own church um, as we continue to reform um, and purify uh, our Lord's day together and, and all these things. So... Um, so yeah, honestly, guys, this is tr this is really of tremendous importance, um, and it's something that uh, you should really consider, especially for those of you who are looking for a church or uh, are in a church that is maybe lacking significantly in one of these areas. Um, this is it. <laughs> this is this is this is the episode you've been looking for. <laughs> this is it. Amazing. Uh, and on that note, Tony, do you have in, any final thoughts on this topic? But also. Um, Aside from the Scots Confession, what else should people read if they want to get a little bit more perspective on these marks of what is a true uh, Christian biblical church? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, right, Paul Paul gives us a pretty clear analogy of what the church is, right? He talks about it as as a body, right? And you know, when you when you go to the doctor and the doctor says you have cancer. What that means is you've got cells in your body that are are working at odds with the function of the body, that they they aren't doing what they were designed to do. They're growing in a way they weren't designed to grow. They're functioning in a way they weren't designed to function. They're not they're not functioning in the body as uh, the the boundaries of the body and the restrictions of the body intend them to. And so the answer to that is either you do some sort of treatment which sort of beats those cells into submission and they, they get back into, into the order of things or you remove them from the body. And so we can all recognize that when we're talking about a physical concrete body, that there are some times that you have to discipline the body. You have to discipline a cell or an organ that's not functioning properly. 
And Paul gives us that analogy because it works, right? And so church mm-hmm. discipline and and just all of these things, but especially church discipline, I, I'm kind of harping on that because I think that's the one most people don't quite get as much. They don't understand the importance as much. When you have that kind of situation, whether you're a part of a church that isn't doing church discipline at all, or sometimes you're a part of a church that's doing church discipline in an overbearing, heavy-handed way that's not biblical, that's like what happens when we refuse to cut the cancer out. Eventually, that church is going to die. And so it's important for us as Christians to look at a church that we're either a part of or we're considering joining if if we're new to an area or we've decided to leave an unhealthy church, we're looking for another church. To look at these things. I think we all go into it and we go, yeah, of course it's got to have decent preaching. It's got to have good preaching. They got to preach the gospel. Yeah. They need to be faithful to the word of God. That's that's an obvious one for most of us. And I think for most of us, because we already have some sort of conviction about the sacraments, either as sort of Presbyterian, you know, continental guys or Baptists, whatever, we've got a conviction. We know to look there too, but we don't often look at like, well, how is the church handling church discipline? Are they properly fencing the table? Are there people who are getting baptized six or seven times because they, you know, it didn't take the first time? All of these things should go into our thought process much more. And I'm not saying like, yeah, check out if you got kids and they don't have a kids ministry. That's a real thing you have to consider. Right. Can you deal with the music style? That's a real thing you have to consider. Those are valid considerations, practically speaking, about whether you can be uh, comfortable and confident in a local congregation. But even prior to even even observing any of those things, you really need to understand these marks of the church. Are they preaching the word faithfully? Do do I am I going to hear the law and the gospel every single mm. Sunday morning that I go? Amen. And is it properly distinguished? Right? Mm. Am I going to hear gospel? Oh. <laughs> am I going to end up with some sort of messy craziness like we hear out of Idaho, Moscow? Right? Got him. Or Mos- <laughs> Moscow, Idaho. Um, are we properly administering the sacraments? Right, I, this wasn't intended to be a Doug Wilson bash, but it's. I think it's going to end up there. Right? Oh. Are they properly administering the sacraments? Right, yeah. if you're a Baptist, are you going somewhere where you all of a sudden are realizing, oh man, they're baptizing babies? Like that's something you have to think about. Yeah. And then are they doing church discipline right? Are there people in the church who should not be taking communion or should not be being baptized who are? All of those things have to be observed and understood and assessed when we go to a church. And if any one of those components is completely missing. Right. If you go to a church and like, well, we don't do baptism because we think that's really outmoded. That might sound crazy, but there are lots of churches out there that think that way. Well, that's like an ancient relic of the past. We just don't do that anymore. It's it's like this old water ritual. We don't need to do that. Right. Well, that, then you're not a they, Christian yeah. church anymore. Right. It was like, well, they were yeah. baptized with water, but but he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. So so right. Tony, what you're saying is that uh, the marks of the church are not speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, and and fire right. baptisms, right? <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yeah. We don't want to get, get that fired up. from the church. As far as some things to as far as some things to read, I have a stack of books here. I'll go through them quick. Um, there's an older uh, theology series called uh, Contours of Christian Theology, published by uh, IVP. I have not read this, but I'm very confident in the series. And Edmund Clowney is a rock star, so check this one out. Uh, there's a newer volume by Greg Allison in the uh, Crossway Foundations of Evangelical Theology series. Uh, This is very good. Uh, I'm a little bit into it, but it's excellent so far. And then kind of, I think, a more technical approach is, uh, it's called People in Place. It's by Michael Horton. And it's it's titled A Covenant Ecclesiology. So for, for those of you who are 
particular Baptist, you're probably not going to love everything he says, but most of it you're going to be on board with. And if you're a Presbyterian, this is just going to feel like a warm, cozy jacket that you just put on or something like that. I don't know where that analogy came from. Um, and then just because we are uh, on this show and not another show, uh, Bob Inc. on this is excellent as well. He covers it in volume four of the Dogmatics. Just because. I'm sure I'm sure that Wilhelmissa Brockel also covers this in his volumes, but I haven't read that yet. Getting there. That, that, you know, I, I heard a story that that's read to the Dutch children. So I'm like, man, yeah. I got to I got to get caught up. I am. I am behind the times. Well, Tony, thank you for spending yeah. time with us. And speaking of being behind the times, Justin, if people aren't following us on social media, uh, how can they get on that? <laughs> Y'all listen, I know you're on Facebook. So why don't you head up to that little search bar, search for Distilling Theology. There's a page that you can like and a group that you definitely want to join. It is still hands down, without a doubt, uh, in our estimation, the most sage-staged reform Very Facebook objective group on the internet. Very objective opinion here. <laughs> um, uh, also head over to Instagram. We have some fun stuff there at Distilling Theology. Um, occasionally, once in a blue moon, if you have a Twitter, uh, you can uh, you can occasionally see Blake Bash on some uh, heretics at distilling tea so that's I fun i did that uh, head over there <laughs> um yeah so for social media i mean uh th- th- that's really it we don't, we're not like it's not like we got like a tiktok or something people so no. yeah, just just head over to those things um Blake, the elder if they millennials want more yeah <laughs> if they want more ridiculous content content that is unabridged as it were uh where can they become a part of our family well, you can join us on Patreon, starting at something, something, something. Where's my link going? Join us on Patreon, starting at four ninety nine per month. You'll get exclusive bonus content, including extended conversations, early release episodes, and a discount on shopstonetheology.com. Or if you join us starting at fourteen ninety nine per month, after your first three months there, you'll get extra content and you're going to get an exclusive patron mug, which is pretty cool. We also have new merch coming, so you're not going to want to miss that. And somehow, someway, uh, we have not yet been kicked out of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective. And the roll call has changed. The Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Assurance of Pardon, Baptist Broadcast, Bobcast, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Fox Den, Guilt, Grace, oh man, it's all messed up now. I'm not ready. Grace and Peace Radio, <laughs> Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, The Particular Baptist Podcast, Reform Brotherhood, Reform Pilgrims, Restless, Small Town Theologian, and Steady Anchor. And you can get all those shows at reformpodcasts.com. I highly recommend it. If you guys want to get a diversity of content, it's it's excellent. It's cool to see the society growing. It's cool to still be in that and, and, and churning out content in there. Um, Tony and Jesse were really behind causing that. So, Tony, while we have you here, um, how did you start that society and and how have you been growing it over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, this uh, the podcast group started like most reform things do on the Internet with me picking a fight uh, <laughs> way back in the day, actually. <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Butts, who's no longer really existing on the Internet, but he had a podcast. He was in a different network. And we got into it with some of his guys about the second commandment and pictures of Jesus and he got kicked out. So we started this. So it started off with uh, our show, Matt's show, and then fast God stuff. 
Uh, and in, that uh, has just grown. I mean, we did a little, we had a little hiatus a little while and rebooted with uh, Distilling Theology and um, a couple other shows at the time. And it's great. I mean, I, I, I literally just, when I find a new podcast that I like, I, I play Pokemon and I try to catch them all. So I just reach out. Sometimes they say yes. Most of the time they say yes. Every once in a while they're not interested, but I'm okay with that. So yeah, it's a great way to, to just get a lot of really good podcasts in your ear holes. So check it out. Yes, finally. Oh, it's back. <laughs> oh, no. Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. Go check out um, Go check out Tony's content. Go check out the Reformed podcasts. Go check out Reformed Brotherhood. And, uh, you know, it's been really entertaining. I thoroughly enjoy this. Uh, Tony, thanks for um, having this scotch on hand because that was delicious. And uh, we've got our notes here for our tagline. So, guys, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs> <laughs>